Thank you so much, Chris and team. Worship is ascribing to God all of his worth and glory and responding to who he is. I think that's becoming one of my favorite songs just because it's, it's one of those songs that it's asking you questions and asking you to respond. Is he worthy? And the congregation says with one voice, he is. It's exciting to think about the lamb that was slain for us. Well, it is a true joy to be with you this morning, to be opening up the word of God as Ken and his family get some time away with their family. Our topic for today is love. I don't know about you, love makes me a little uncomfortable. You would think with a wife and four daughters that would not be the case, but it is. I don't know, maybe it's a guy thing. Especially when it's one of those sappy romantic movies. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? One of those Hallmark movies or, yeah, you know the ones. Tear jerkers. Sometimes when I'm watching one of those movies, I feel like the grandson in that classic movie from 1987, The Princess Bride. You guys watch that movie? I saw it when I was a freshman in high school. It was a while ago. I am a product of the 80s. I don't apologize. Remember the grandson, he's homesick and his grandpa comes over to read a story to him. And what is the book? The Princess Bride. It's the name of the book that he's reading. Which is fine as long as the story has lots of action and none of those kissy parts. Remember that? He's like, Grandpa, does it have kissy parts? None of that romance stuff. And so this book that he reads, The Princess Bride, is about the most beautiful woman in the world named what? Buttercup. How could you forget the most beautiful woman in the world's name? Buttercup. And of course, the hero who loves her named Wesley. The evil prince Humperdinck who says he wants to marry her. Some of you forgot the movie. So the story reminds us that death is no barrier to true love. The story filled with exotically accented swordsmen, (laughs) big-hearted giants, genius kidnappers, the cliff of insanity, (laughs) vile swamps, rodents of unusual size. How could you forget the really large rats? the dead pirate Roberts, and a somewhat embittered miracle worker played by Billy Crystal. The love between Wesley and Buttercup twists and turns on a path filled with adventure. Now think about it. What is it about these stories that reminds us and and gets us, grips us? What is it about them? I think it's the way that a person will lovingly sacrifice themselves and everything for the sake of another. There's something about a story like that. That's why sometimes you, you, you hear about a, a live story, a real true story about a hero who sacrificed everything to save others. That grips us, brings a tear to our eye. I mean, even in the movie, Wesley serves her and responds to her every request by saying what? As you wish. In fact, that's how she figured out he was the dread pirate. As you wish, as he's tumbling down the hill. 
Wesley, the hero of the story, literally dies in his quest to be reunited with the one he loves. They provoke such passion, such emotion in our hearts because for most of us, I think we long to encounter that type of sacrificial true love. In fact, for many, the closest they've ever come to this type of love is probably in a book, probably in a movie. They've never experienced it. And maybe they even themselves believe that they're incapable of truly loving someone else in that way. And so the movie ends, the credits roll, the lights come up, and reality comes back into frame. Some of you know exactly what I mean. For some, you have a person in your life that is truly difficult to love. See, the minute I just said that, their face popped into your head, didn't it? Their name. Thanks, Chris. And the minute that happens, what do you begin to replay? All the reasons why they are so unlovely, why they're difficult to love. Maybe just thinking about them has the tendency to make you angry or bitter, something they did in the past, something they've never admitted or confessed, they've never changed, they've never asked for forgiveness, whatever it is. For some of you here this morning, you have been victimized, you've been abused. And you feel like your capacity to love has shriveled up. In fact, the thought of forgiving that person is horrific to you. Seems impossible. There are some of us here who have been sinned against to such a degree that the thought of loving them makes us sick to our stomach. For example, just a hypothetical situation. Hypothetical. What do you say to a woman who just found out that the man that she thought was her faithful, loving husband of 20 years committed adultery. What do you tell her? She's angry. She can't understand how this man who pledged his undying love to her could be so selfish, could hurt her so badly, wound her so deeply. And even though he has repented of his sin, even though he has broken off that relationship, she is losing hope that she could ever trust him or learn to love him again. In this moment, it seems that their marriage is broken, irreparable. What would you say to this couple? What would you say to her? Is there hope for their marriage? Can they learn to trust and love one another again? Thankfully, the Bible gives us the answer to these questions, and thankfully, it gives us hope. This morning, my purpose is simple. I want to accomplish two things with us this morning. First, I'm going to define love. What is love? And then secondly, I'm going to describe love, how to love, and and mainly by focusing on how God loves us. This morning, you may have a broken relationship. You may have a person or people in your life that are truly, truly difficult to love. You may not feel like loving them. And they may, in fact, be difficult to love. But my prayer for us is that we would grow in thankfulness and amazement for the love that God shows to us. 
which in turn would motivate us to love others as we have been loved. So let's look at our first main point, love defined. Now, what is the most popular verse in all of the Bible? Anytime you go to any major sporting event and the camera pans across the crowd, what sign are they holding up? John 3.16. Some of you have already looked at your bulletin. You have your hand out in front of you. John 3.16. The Princess Bride love story pales in comparison to this Bible verse, which contains truly the greatest story of love. Turn with me to John 3.16 if you're not there already. John 3.16. Some of you have this verse memorized. That's all right. It's a good verse to memorize. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now what's the first word that is at the very beginning of this verse? For. That's typically grammatically a sign that we need to look backwards to find out what that for is there for. So I want to give you a little bit of context that will help set the stage for this verse. See, throughout the Gospel of John, John's purpose is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's really one of the main purposes of the book of John. How do we know that? John chapter 20, verse 31 says, But these things have been written. What's the things? Everything that's been written in the book of John. These things have been written so that, here's the purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He wants those who read this testimony to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in belief to receive what? Eternal life. That's his purpose. So throughout the book of John, John narrates some of the signs that Jesus did and records some of the conversations that Jesus had. Here in chapter 3, John records a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Look at verse 1. Who is this Nicodemus that Jesus is talking to? John 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He wasn't just any Pharisee. He was in the ruling class, meaning he was in the Sanhedrin. He was at the tippy, tippy, tippy top of that ruling class of religious leaders in Jesus' day. Nicodemus asked Jesus how he's able to do miraculous signs. That's really what he's after in verse 2. He says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And this conversation provides Jesus with an opportunity, an opportunity to begin to unpack what it means to have this life-transforming faith in Christ away from a shallow faith based only on miraculous signs. So Jesus begins to explain what does it mean to be born again in verses 3 and verse 7. Jesus mentions this concept of being born again. Nicodemus is confused. How can that be? How can that be? but he explains what it means to be born again through faith in the Son of Man. Look what verses 14 and 15 say. Jesus tells Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is Jesus referencing there? Who will be lifted up? It's a veiled reference to what? 
to the cross. He's pointing him to the cross. Verse 15, so that whoever believes will in, ha- will in him have eternal life. After saying all of that in this conversation with Nicodemus, we come to verse 16 where Jesus says, for. Now he's about to explain in greater depth that the only way that we can receive this free gift of eternal life is through faith in Christ. And the only way and reason that we can do that is because God loved the world. Now there's some preachers who have turned this one passage, John 3.16, into a three-month series. I know that because I read through some of them. It's amazing how much there is in John 3.16. You could literally turn this into a mini-series. There's numerous parts that we could focus on. Things like this, like the idea of Christ as our greatest gift. I could do a whole message on that one part. Or how about this, the fact that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people even beyond the nation of Israel. Think about it, this is a religious Jew. God, Jesus just told him that God loved the Jews, but he also loved what? Beyond the Jews. His love is bigger or we could do a whole message from John 3.16 on the simplicity of belief. What does it mean to believe? Or a whole message on the greatest possession that we could ever have. What does it mean to have eternal life? I'm not going to do that this morning. In fact, I want to narrowly focus our attention on the greatest act, God's love. So that's what we're going to do this morning. John says, for God so loved the world. How did God love those of us in the world? What does the text say? That he, what? Gave. Love is giving. Love is giving. You see, well, why did God give his love in this way? Because God saw that we had a huge problem with our sin. Our rebellion ever since the garden, mankind We have rebelled against God. We've said, God, not your way. I want to do it my way. And that rebellion has led us to love whom? Ourselves. God looking down, seeing us in our sin, saw that we had a major sin problem. Our selfishness, our anger, our lying, our deceit, our fighting, our stealing. In fact, Romans 3, 10 to 12 reminds us that there's not even one who's righteous, not even one who seeks after God. And he knew that the result of our sin would lead us to pain, to suffering, and eventually death in a place of eternal torment called hell. Because what does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. What we earn by rebelling against God is not happiness. It's not the thing that we think that sin is going to bring us. In fact, the Bible promises is what? Trouble, pain, suffering, torment. So what does this verse say that God did? Does God look upon us in our sinful rebellion? Does he turn his back on us and say, well, now you get what you deserve. You did the crime, what? Now you do the time. I said that like an ex-cop, didn't I? Does God do that? Does he respond that way? No. He willingly gave something of inconceivable value. 
who did God give us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not just any son, but his one and only son, his unique son. In fact, this is why this adverb so is there. If I can get into the grammar a little bit. I know how much you guys love adverbs this early in the morning. For God so loved the world. This is why when you talk to someone who's fishing and they talk about the one that got away, what do they say? It was so big. What are they doing? Probably lying. But, you know, we don't judge hearts. That's not our job. What are they doing? They're emphasizing what? The hugeness of the fish that got away. We could almost say this verse like this. For God so loved the world. If my hands could go farther, they would. How much did God love us? Can you conceive of the immeasurable love of God? This adverb emphasizes the intensity and greatness of God's love. In fact, one author said this, that this was God's infinite love made manifest in an infinitely glorious manner. Can you comprehend infinite love? You being a finite being, me being finite, here and now, no, it's infinite. God's love required sacrifice. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to live a perfect life and die an unjust death so that any of us who would repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ would be saved. That's why God sent his son to earth that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Does this verse say that someone twisted God's arm? God, you created him, you gotta go in there and fix it. Does this verse say that you were oh so lovely, God just couldn't resist? He looked down from heaven and saw you in your sin and, and pain and sorrow and said, oh, you're just so adorable, of course I'll send my son for you. Because which of us is that lovely? Even on your best day, how lovely are you? We all fall short. We all fall short. No. God made a choice to love us. And he proved his love in action. God gave freely the most precious thing, his only cherished son. So let me give you a simple biblical definition of love. Are you ready? Love is choosing to give. Love is choosing to give. This is love defined. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. God's agape, love, willingly, actively, and deliberately poured out with such affection and unmerited care for us. Love is choosing to give. Well, that was a very simple definition of love. Choosing to give. Now let's go to our second main part, love described. And to do this, I want to walk through various passages in the scripture to help us understand 
what Jesus was talking about in the giving of this love. Five descriptions of how God loves us. And so really the point is to help define the nature of God's love. If love is choosing to give, let's see how God did it. Number one, God loved us first. God loved us first. What does 1 John 4, 19 say? How many of us have this memorized? We love because what? He first loved us. God made the first move. That's what that verse is saying. He volitionally chose to send his unmerited affection on us. If God had waited for us to make the first move, we would still be waiting. He would still be waiting. It's an amazing thought. Now compare this with the world. What does the world say? The world says, I'll do good to you if I know you'll do good to me. Right? Think about this hypothetical example with this wife whose husband committed adultery. She wants to withhold her love until her husband changes enough to show that he's worthy of her trust and love. Because what is she concerned about? If he did it once, what? He's going to do it again. She wants to withhold her love. She wants him to move toward her. And when she sees he's made enough progress, what will she do? Then she will grant love. Did God wait to love us until we had proven our worth, until we had become lovable? According to 1 John 4, he loved us, what? First. It's interesting to think how many people view love first as a feeling, as an emotion. Have you ever talked to someone? Maybe they have a relationship with someone or in their marriage and they say, hey, I, I fell in love with this person. And I'm like, what, like a hole? Did, did you, you fell into it? And then at the end, when things are rough, what expression do they use? I fell out of love. Like a tree? Did you fall out of a tree? Almost as if it's out of their control. Maybe you've heard someone use that expression. Is love primarily and first a feeling? Absolutely, love is a feeling. It's an emotion, absolutely. Is it first a feeling? What if God did that? What if God looked upon you and said, you know, I've been loving you pretty faithfully and pretty unconditionally, and I see everything you're doing. I fell out of love with you. Aren't you thankful God does not love us like that? Love is a volitional, willing choice to put God first and others second. Where am I getting that from? What's the greatest commandment? There's a reason it's first. Love God with what? All your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Love him with everything. And as I'm doing that, what will come more naturally? Second is like it. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what love is. It's first and foremost a choice. You think, well, Chris, what motivates us to, to love that way? Turn with me to Titus 3. There's numerous passages I could use to to show us this motivation, but Titus chapter three is possibly one of my favorites. Titus 
Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3, starts this way. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Who's the we? Who's Titus talking about here? Who's the we ourselves? Who's he referring to? Christians, us. This is me. This is you. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's who we were, Christian. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, in his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, implying what? You don't deserve it. You could never earn it. It's unmerited. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. When someone doesn't love me in the way that I hope or want or desire, when they're unlovely, I must remember that's who I was when God sent his son to love me first. Secondly, God loves us in spite of our faults. God loves us in spite of our faults. Romans 5.8, turn there with me. We know this verse well. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we stopped sinning enough to make ourselves good enough to save. The reality is no matter how good we try, we are never, we never do enough. We lie, we get angry, we do selfish things, we have a good day. Some of you are gonna walk out of hearing this message and you are gonna be unlovely this afternoon. I'm not a prophet. I know that's gonna happen. It could be me. Especially if the Texans don't have a certain outcome. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your, your wife is like, honey, that's not a very loving thing to say about Mahomes. God sent Jesus as our sacrifice while we were still wicked, selfish sinners. He didn't just say, I love you from afar. What does Romans 5 8 say? He demonstrated. What does it mean to demonstrate love? You just don't talk about it. You what? You do it. You put it into practice. If God said, I love you, but he didn't send his son, how would we view his love? Word only. I don't believe it. But he didn't love us that way. He loved us and demonstrated proof. Compare this with the world. The world says this, I'll love you as long as you make me happy, as long as you don't cause me too much pain and trouble. What do we call that if we say, I love you if? What is that? It's a condition, isn't it? Do we love conditionally? Are we supposed to love conditionally? No. Does God love conditionally? Does God say, I'll love you if 
I'll send my son if you could just prove that you're actually going to follow him. Does God do that? God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, what does that mean? We were still God haters. We were enemies of God when he looked upon us and sent his son to die in our place. That is amazing. I have a hard time loving you when you're doing good, let alone loving my worst enemy. We were enemies of God and he sent his son to die. See, the wife had made a promise to love and forgive her husband. When did she make that promise? When did she do it? The day she said what? I do. I promise to love you. I promise to cherish you. I promise to forgive you. I promise to stay with you. She had made that promise to him. He has asked for forgiveness. He has forsaken his sin. Do you think she feels like loving him? In fact, all she can see is what? Fault, 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 fault. You've wounded me. You've sinned against me. You've you've grieved me. I can't even be in the same room with you. In fact, at that moment, what does he seem more like? A friend? No, what? An enemy. So she wants him out of her life for the betrayal, for the pain that he's caused. Think about this with me. God sent his prized and precious son to save us, knowing full well that the very ones he was sent to save would be the ones to crucify and kill his son. If that's not demonstrated love, I don't know what is. See, God will often use verses like this to begin to change the heart when we find it hard to love someone. In fact, for this wife, as she begins to think about just how great God's love was for her, what does it do? It begins to fill her with thankfulness. She takes her eyes off of his faults and puts them where? On her own, recognizing, God, you loved me first. You demonstrated your love for me while I was a God-hater. Creates thankfulness and compassion and even a greater willingness to love her husband in spite of his faults. God loved her when she was wicked, How could she not love her husband in spite of his faults? Don't miss this. When you and I don't feel like loving, we must choose to love. Because there are days when you don't feel like loving and they don't deserve your love. And you must choose to give your love in the same way that God has given his love to you. In fact, I think it's hard to do that because sometimes we're so focused on how people have sinned against us, how they've failed us, that we can't help but think think about all the things that we don't have. You ever have that list? Because of your sin, that dream is gone. Because of your sin, now I have to endure these lasting consequences. Because of what you did to me, now I feel this way all the time. What am I doing? Creating a list of all the things that you've wounded me, all the things that you've done against me. Where does that lead? To an unthankful heart. 
Part of choosing to love someone in spite of their faults is to begin to choose to dwell on all that we have in Christ. You say, well, Chris, how do I do that? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.14, this passage is so convicting to me. I read it often because I struggle to do it. And I have to remind myself, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul tells the Corinthians this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that why did Christ die for all? Here's the purpose. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What is the simplicity of this verse telling us? You know how you can be controlled by the love of Christ? That when you don't feel like loving, when you are struggling to love someone in spite of their faults, you must conclude something. What is it? Christ died for me. He died for me so that I would not be enslaved to anger and hatred and bitterness and malice and wrath and an unforgiving spirit. He died so that the love of Christ might control me through the gospel. And so when I begin to think of that list of all the wounds and the ways that they've hurt us, failed and disappointed, I have to take my eyes off of that and put it on the cross and remind myself Jesus Christ loved me to death. How could I not turn around now and love others in the same way that he loved me? It's very practical. This, that's why this, this idea of concluding something is it, where is the battle won or lost? It's, it's in our mind and our heart. And I want to think about the faults and the unloveliness and I have to fight that temptation to withhold love by thinking about how much God loved me in spite of my faults. Christ did not save you and I so that you would live for yourself. He saved you so that you would live for him, the one who died and rose again on your behalf. Well, God loved us first. Secondly, God loved us in spite of our faults. Thirdly, God loves us visibly. God loves us visibly. Again, in our text, John 3.16 makes this abundantly clear. God didn't just say it, he did it. He sent his son. He chose to give. He followed up his words with action. Turn with me to 1 John 3.18. Again, we know this passage well. Many of these are are stirring up by way of reminder. 1 John 3.18 says this. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue but in deed and truth. What is John saying there? Is it easy to tell someone that you love them? Is that easy? For the most part, it's easy. Hey, I love you. How do you prove your love according to this text? Is it enough just to say it? This is like the guy who comes to marriage counseling and he says, well, I done told her I loved her the day I married her. Why are you saying I got to tell her every day, Chris? I'm not from Texas. That's my closest approximation of a Texan. By golly, I do love her. Well, tell her. 
And she's like, well, he, he has told me. What is she thinking? Can he just do the dishes? Can he just help around the house? Can he just change the tone of his voice when he gets upset with the kids and with me? Can he not make me feel bad when I fail? Can I? That wife wants not only what? For him to communicate his love, what else does she want to see? A demonstration of it. Not just on the outside, but what? In truth, from the inside out. And that's what 1 John 3.18 is about. Now compare this with the world. So often love is promised, but do we prove our love in action even when things get difficult? Is our love obvious? I'm looking at Matt in India back there. How many weeks have you been married? Five weeks. Congratulations. You are in what we call the what? Honeymoon phase, yeah. India, Matt can do no wrong, can he? I mean, look at him. He's just the picture of beauty and eloquence and he does dishes and yeah. Buckle up, sister. Man, I'm picking on you because I know you can handle it. India, did he promise you his undying love? Did you believe him? I did. I was there. I believed him. What India wants more than anything is for Matt to do what? Prove it, even when things get difficult, even when things go sour. Is our love obvious? Is it unmistakable? In fact, part of the healing process for this wife would be to learn how to follow the commands of Jesus in Luke 6, 35. Luke 6, 35 says this, love your enemy, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You're thinking, why should I do that? Jesus tells us why. The end of verse 35, he says, because even God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Even God is kind to people who are difficult to love. Why should you love your enemy? Why should you do good? What does it mean to do good to your enemy? Well, I'm going to stop slandering him, I guess. That's a start. That's putting off. What does it mean to put on love? How about you start praying for them? In fact, that's what it says earlier on in verse 27. Pray for your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Start praying for them. And then as you pray for them, what does God do? Praying a month for your enemy, God begins to soften your heart because it's very hard to pray for their good in God's glory when you're still angry and have an unforgiving heart. And then what's the next step? How can I practically do or say something that communicates my love for them in spite of their faults, in spite of their difficulties visibly, in spite of the fact that they haven't come and asked me for forgiveness? And it's baby steps to doing good. In fact, that's why Romans 12 tells us, I think it's verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil by good. 
Part of choosing to love God's way is loving through visible words and actions even if they don't deserve it. Now, I just want to hit the pause button here for a moment. I haven't really talked about the husband in this hypothetical situation. Do we ever excuse his sin? No. In fact, we're calling him to repentance. We're working with him at the same time. We're calling him to love God. The reason why you did this is you didn't love God enough. You didn't love your wife in that way. We're calling him to repentance and we're working with him and challenging him to do his part as well. But the whole time the church is working with him, what are we doing with this woman? Also helping and patiently, gently helping her to love in this way. So it's a process. I just didn't want you to think we're only focused on her. We would be focused on both. In this hypothetical situation. God loved us first. God loved us in spite of our faults. God loves us visibly forth. God loves us with forgiveness. God loves us with forgiveness. This is why Ephesians 4.32 reminds us to forgive one another as God in Christ also has forgiven you. When has God forgiven us? The moment we repented of our sins and put our faith in Christ. And every time we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says what? He is faithful and righteous to what? To forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful thought. The Bible says no matter how many sins we've committed, how bad they are, no matter how many times we repeat the same sin, you ever do that? You sin, you ask God for forgiveness, and then you do it again. And you ask him for forgiveness, and then you do it again. And then you ask him for forgiveness. Does God remove his love? No, he still loves you by forgiving you. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. What happens when we conceal our sin and hide it and cover it up? We don't prosper. Things don't go well. Why? Because that's what sin does. It separates. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another. What brings healing? Confession of sin. In fact, Proverbs 28, 13, the end of that verse says, but he who confesses and forsakes his sin will find what? Compassion. Compassion from the Lord when we confess it and forsake it. Confess it means I admit it. I say, God, you're right. I did it. I'm guilty. Please forgive me. What does it mean to forsake our sin? To do everything in our power to what? Run from it. To forsake it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm going to cut it off to the best of my ability. And the word of God in Proverbs 20 and 13 promises us that when we do that, we will find compassion because that's how God's love is. It's an amazing thought. Now compare this with the world. Marriage and relationships should be filled with committed love. Yet how often does an unforgiving heart break up a relationship I'll never forget the first time I heard John MacArthur say this when I was probably in high school. He said, quote, I believe the number one reason why so many people get divorced is because of unforgiveness, end quote. The first thing I thought is, that's not true. Because in my mind, I was thinking there's a whole bunch of other reasons why people get divorced, why relationships break up. 20 years of ministry and counseling and discipleship and my own struggles, guess what? 
I think John MacArthur's right. At least it's in the top three. True love forgives. And what would motivate forgiveness from the broken and hurting heart of this wife? If she stays focused on his hurt to her, what will she do? What will she be tempted to do? Forgive me, honey. No. But if she were to focus on how much God has forgiven her, how can she hold on to her husband's sin? No matter how great it might seem at that moment. If she were to collectively take all of her sins from beginning to end, the ones that she hasn't even completed yet, lay them all at the cross, how great would her list be of sins? In fact, it's very reminiscent of a story that Jesus told in Matthew Chapter 18, verse 21. I don't have time to read it. You can read it later. Jesus tells the story of an unforgiving servant. Remember, the servant had a debt he could never repay. It was huge. He goes to the king. The king says, well, I'm going to put you in prison until you can pay it off. Well, how am I going to pay it off in prison? He begs the king, please, O Lord, show compassion. He uses that word. Show me compassion. And it says the king, moved with compassion, does what? Forgives him of the debt. And he walks down the steps. And what are you and I, and the readers, those that heard this story, what are they expecting him to do? He sees someone who owes him a month's wages, a smaller debt. What are you expecting him to do? I've been forgiven a debt I could never repay. He sees him. It says he grabs him and begins to choke him and says, pay what you owe. You can imagine Jesus telling the story and the whole audience is like hushed. Like, well, that's not what we thought would happen. You see, here's the warning. If we don't lovingly forgive others, then the victim becomes the victimizer. Did you get that? How does the victim become the victimizer? The one who's been sinned against to such a great degree, if they can't forgive, what will happen in their heart? Anger, bitterness. You know what bitterness is? It's just deep-seated resentment, unresolved anger. And if I have bitterness in my heart towards someone, that bitterness makes it impossible for me to love. That's the result of unrepentant bitterness. It's in my heart. I can't love you if I wanted to. And so the victim becomes the victimizer. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe in Matthew 18, 28. See, if she refuses to forgive the sin of her husband, her hurt and anger will turn into this kind of bitterness. How will she victimize him? In her mind, yep. The way she thinks about him. With her words, how she speaks about him to others, yep. When she sees him, yep. How she treats him, yep. What she says to the kids about him, yep. God loved us with forgiveness and so should we lovingly forgive others. Well, let's look at this last description of God's love and of course there's more. But I just chose the top five. Lastly, God loves us unceasingly. 
God loves us unceasingly. Turn with me to Romans 8, 38. I think this is a verse that would be good for all of us to read. Romans 8, starting in verse 38. Paul says this, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So church, what can come between us and the love of God? Can demons, can the sins of others, can our sin, nothing present, nothing future, no. In fact, Paul says not even death will separate us from the love of God for us as Christians. Nothing can separate us. And how do we know this? Because what does the end of John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall what? Have eternal life. It's the promise of John 3.16. It's the promise here in Romans 8. This is God's loving, faithful promise. Get this. Eternal love for an eternal life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now compare this with the world. Our love lasts as long as we're happy. But when we become unsatisfied, when we become disappointed, do we feel like loving someone? When we don't have our expectations met or our our rights or our needs, I can even hold up the Bible and say, the Bible says you're supposed to do this and you're not doing it. Is it easy to love them? No, that's when somebody says, well, I don't love you anymore. I fell out of love. They become often judgmental, bitter, critical. They say, well, if you can't give me the love that I deserve or that I need, then I'm gonna go look elsewhere for it. Does God love you that way? How many dark seasons of your life has God loved you and hold your, held your hand through it and been there with you and loved you and brought, even as, as Kyle was saying from Psalm 32, that heavy hand upon you? Again, why do we feel guilty because of our sin? Often, it's amazing. I, I talk to people about guilt. Almost all of us tend to think of guilt as a negative thing. You know what guilt is? Guilt is, for the believer the conviction of the Holy Spirit that what you're doing is hurting you and it's displeasing to the Lord. Stop it, repent, change, return to me. Guilt is a good thing. I mean, think about it. The next time your smoke and fire alarm goes off, hey, turn that off. It's annoying me. Went off again. Hey, who is making that stupid thing? Turn it off. Take the battery out. What is the purpose of a smoke alarm? To warn you. What is the purpose of our guilt? To warn you. Are you right with the Lord? God 
God's love endures. God's love never fails. God's love never ends. How do we know this? You don't have to turn there. You probably know it well. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. I just want to read this slowly. This is how God loves us. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's how God loves you and me. This wife wants to divorce her husband for so many reasons. Like she has no guarantee it won't happen again. The hurt is so great, I can't imagine ever not feeling this way. But as she considers God's unceasing love for her, what does it do? It motivates her to keep loving her husband so that her love would bear all things. Her love would believe all things. What does that mean? To believe the best, to strive to believe the best. Her love begins to hope again. And her love is willing to endure what might come tomorrow. Again, tomorrow has enough care of its own. What must she do? Focus on loving God and loving him today. God loves us unceasingly and so should we. Well, just by way of conclusion this morning, we have defined and described love biblically. What is love? Love is choosing to give. And as good as the Princess Bride story was, now some of you are gonna go rent it or watch it or read it, just to remind yourself, as good as that story was, no matter how creative you or I could be, we could never hope to write a more pure, true story of love than the story of how God sent his son to die for those who would believe in him. This morning, if you do not know the love of God, maybe you have never turned from your sins in repentance, you've never asked God for forgiveness, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that today is the day that you would receive the unceasing love of God, for it will never fail you, and he offers it to you as a free gift through Christ. Have you been victimized? Do you have difficult people to love in your life? Are you having a tough time forgiving someone of the sin that has so deeply wounded you? Do you have a broken relationship that just can't seem to heal? With God's help, we can learn how to forgive and love the unlovely, just as God in Christ loved us when we were unlovely. I hope and pray And as we have been reminded this morning of just how amazing God's love is for us, that we would be motivated to him, love him, and love others in the same way. Love is a choice to give. May we love as God has loved us. Amen? Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your lavish love, which in many ways is hard to imagine, hard to comprehend how you could love us. Like that passage in Titus 3, we were lost and sinners and wicked and haters of men and haters of others, selfishly inclined. But your love demonstrated when you sent your son to die for the unlovely. What an amazing thought, the amazing grace and love that you demonstrated to us. And Lord, I don't know who's here this morning, but you do. There may be some who are struggling to love the unlovely. Lord, would you please use the truth of your word by the power of your spirit, Lord God, to challenge them to take their eyes off of them and their situation and the other and to put them on you. That your love would be the example, your love, even as you are kind to evil and ungrateful men that that would motivate them to love as they have been loved. And Lord, for some here this morning, maybe they have never received your love. Lord, would you please show them their need for a savior? Lord, more than anything, we as a church, we want to demonstrate the kind of love that you have given to us corporately, privately, within our family. So would you help us to do that, Lord God, because it pleases you. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said, amen.